Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Welcome to Unobscured, a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. Charles Warren would remain at his post. Until they could pick a successor, that is. But Home Secretary Matthews was quick to accept the police commissioner's resignation. He was only too happy for their tense relationship to come to an end. There were some who mourned the choice, though. The sound of boots pounding the halls at Scotland Yard had made it known— The constables of his Metropolitan Police were grateful for his leadership. If anyone in the ranks had been unsettled by his order to beat down poor Londoners in the street on Bloody Sunday of 1887, those concerns didn't make it into the police records. But Warren had always gone to bat on the men's behalf, and the new boots they were wearing were bought on Warren's orders. Others, though, felt the smallest amount of glee that Warren had been pushed aside. Among them was the surgeon who had served at Scotland Yard for years until that spring, Dr. Thomas Bond. He was a distinguished police surgeon with an incredible record of providing expert forensic and medical analysis in tough cases. What's more, he was also paid to serve as the doctor for the police themselves, so he was well known to many of the officers at Scotland Yard. And when it came to weighing in on medical evidence, he was no stranger to high-profile tests— After all, he was the surgeon who had consulted on the Brighton Railway murder. Since then, Dr. Bond had joined the central hub of police in London, making a pretty penny and doing his part on tricky cases when it came to medical matters. But in 1888, Charles Warren decided to see him off. Here's historian Adam Wood to tell us more. The story was that, as always with Warren, he was looking to make changes to the Met to make it more efficient. And as the majority of of the detectives lived away from Scotland Yard in L Division, which was south of the Thames, where the new recruits were also based as they did their training. In early 1888, he moved their care to the divisional surgeons there, Dr George Farr. When Bond discovered this, he complained, but he obviously had, had no choice. And he resigned as a medical officer attached to the detective department and the commissioner's office on the 4th of October 1888. It wasn't long, though, before their situations were reversed because all that took place just weeks before Charles Warren would tender his own resignation. 
and the senior officers of the Criminal Investigation Department came to Dr. Bond with an urgent plea. They were facing a series of grisly murders, and the medical evidence was nearly the sum total of what they had to go on. There was no doctor the detectives trusted more than Thomas Bond, so they asked him to forgive Charles Warren's treatment and provide his expertise in the matter of the Whitechapel murders. Charles Warren was out, and Dr. Bond was back in. Among the reporting on Warren's stepping down was a note in the Times that the commissioner's flight from his duty created an opportunity to emphasize the distinction between the criminal investigation department and the ordinary members of the force. Warren had always sided with the constables, but now the detectives were reasserting control. Warren was a general, sure, but he had been outmaneuvered. It seems that he never grasped that the politics of the Metropolitan Police were a different kind of battlefield than he was ready for. In fact, in all of the history of British policing, the 1880s were a pivotal moment. Two attitudes were battling for dominance. The standard, set by Robert Peel and then pursued by Charles Warren, was crime prevention, to put armed police forces in the streets and threaten such violence against the so-called criminal class that crimes would simply never occur. On the other hand, there were the detectives. They weren't setting out to prevent crimes by force so much as to solve them with clues, to make sure that wrongdoers would suffer the consequences of their actions and thus ward off future crimes by imposing a sense of power of the police that was inescapable. But the idea of a potent and inescapable secret police wasn't always treated kindly by the British public. Here's Drew Gray with more on that. There's certainly a divide between uniform and plain clothes, the detectives. And detection has a bad press in England. It took a long time. So there wasn't a detective agency in England in 1829 when the police was first formed. It took until 1842, and it took actually a couple of catastrophic failures of the police to catch murderers and high-profile criminals for them to create the detective department in 1842. And that was a very small number of officers. You could ask ordinary uniform officers to go into plain clothes, but the British kind of didn't like the idea of plain clothes policing at the time. It kind of smacked of Napoleonic spies. They had quite strong memories of of Napoleon's secret police, and we didn't really want to have a detective in that way. If Londoners feared that a police force given the authority to investigate crimes would also become a clandestine agency with a political agenda, well, they didn't have to wait long. Soon enough, a branch of the detectives would be ferreting out members of a political movement that were making themselves known in London. But of course, as these things go, Certain members of the public who might have rejected the idea of plainclothes officers sneaking around in alleys and back gardens of Londoners might eventually change their tune. Because as much as they hated a secret police, there were other things that they feared far more. This is Unobscured. I'm Aaron Mankey. The bomb had been placed in a public urinal. The urinal was for a pub, the Rising Sun, but when it detonated, the bomb hit its intended target, the police buildings at Whitehall, Scotland Yard. 
The special branch building was ripped apart, including the office of the head of the Criminal Investigation Department. It was May 30th of 1884. That was just one of the bombs that were set that night. In fact, there were explosions throughout the city, exactly as the warning letter had promised. It had arrived addressed to the head of the CID the year before, saying that it would blow the head of Scotland Yard off his stool and dynamite all the public buildings in London. They came close, too. Here's historian Adam Wood to tell us more about who was behind the attack, the Irish Fenians. The Fenian bombing campaign started in 1881, and it lasted for four years. There was a previous campaign in the late 1860s, and again, they were trying to establish Irish independence. But in the 1860s, heads of state and other notable people were attacked in an attempt to highlight the campaign. But the 1880s, they were were a little bit more direct in that they realised that if they targeted landmarks around London and, and elsewhere around the UK that they'd instill fear in the public and achieve an audience with the government. And in the 1880s, there were 19 bombs exploded in Britain 11 in London. And these were places such as Scotland Yard itself was attacked. There were were bombs put around the base of Nelson's Column, which failed to explode. Uh, London Underground saw four explosions. With the bomb blowing up his own offices, the head of the Criminal Investigation Department resigned in shame. And that created an opening but there was a man at hand who was ready to step into the post, James Monroe. The government was looking for a man who was experienced in dealing with political crime, and Monroe certainly fit the bill. Like so many of the men we've met so far, James Monroe was trained and molded in the administration of the British Empire. A Scotsman like Donald Swanson, Monroe made his way to Bengal as part of the legal branch of the Indian Civil Service, But by 1877, he had worked his way up far enough that he was made Inspector General of the Police. The stairs he climbed to that height were the bodies of those he killed when he crushed freedom movements in Northeast India. His investigations and his convictions of Indian Muslims for conspiracy to wage war against the Queen even went as far as convicting another magistrate, the deputy tax collector for the city of Patna. So his view of the Queen's justice was already formed by the time he returned home. Political crime had become his specialty. The story is a familiar one to us by now. Like Charles Warren and like Robert Peel who founded the London police, James Monroe's experience was in tightening the chokehold on people who had been seized by the British Empire. It was his job to bring that mentality home. But his position was certainly a complicated one, and thoroughly political. He was made head of the Criminal Investigation Department, but given two more posts as well. The head of the Special Irish Branch, the set of detectives investigating the Fenian bombings, and also the head of a separate section, also called Special Branch, which reported only to government, not to the police commissioner. As well as serving under the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, Monroe immediately began working with the government's spymaster general, a man named Edward Jenkinson. He wasn't officially a policeman, but he had his own private force of spies, a network spread throughout London that acted in secret, without taking orders from the government or the police. It was everything suspicious Britons feared a detective service might become. Surveillance and information gathering were the order of the day. After all, there were Irish rebels to be caught and stopped, as well as crime to be solved and prevented. And one young officer working down the ranks from James Monroe found himself in the midst of all that work. Donald Swanson, partnering with a senior officer, Adolphus Williamson. Here's Adam Wood once again. 
The two officers worked together quite, on a quite number of investigations. And in both the Fenian campaign and later the Bloody Sunday riots in Trafalgar Square, they worked together looking at the overall picture rather than individual incidents, and thereby piecing together a direction for the investigation. And that's exactly what happened later on in the Ripper case, when Swanson was appointed by the Commissioner Charles Warren to lead the investigation from Scotland Yard. So it was still years before the Whitechapel murders when an incendiary bomb roared through the Tower of London and burned its way into historical infamy with the nickname Dynamite Saturday. That had been the 24th of January in 1885. The tower was crowded at the time by 200 visitors touring the site. The attack, though, was blunted. The fire was put out before anyone was hurt, and what's more, the tower was locked down by a Whitechapel detective who ordered the gates closed so that he could question everyone there. And that detective's name was Frederick Aberline. Aberline noticed one of the men he questioned spoke with an Irish-American accent, not to mention that he couldn't keep his story straight. So Aberline collared him, and when the detectives asked questions at his lodging house, it put them on the trail of yet another man— one who was setting a bomb at the House of Commons. But that wasn't even the biggest moment in Scotland Yard's efforts to stop the Fenian bombs. No, that came in two years later in 1887 during Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee. That's when James Monroe's network of espionage contacts and the head of the Criminal Investigation Department foiled a plot to bomb the celebration. It was a high point in the efforts of the London detectives to bounce back from the wrongdoing of the turf fraud scandal and to ingratiate themselves not just with the public, but with the Crown as well. It seemed that the era of the detective was about to bloom. She told her own story. We can say that, at least. The truth and the fabrication are interwoven, and official records are silent. There's only what she told her most intimate friends— It's their testament to who she was that gives us the life of Mary Jane Kelly. She said she was born in Ireland. Like so many families, though, they went where the jobs were. They followed her father to the ironworks in Carnarvonshire in Wales. And to make matters more stressful, Mary was one of eight children. Together with her sister and six brothers, she no doubt drove her father to find any work he could. What Mary found was a partner— a coal miner who married her and took her out of that large family when she was just 16. But mining coal is dangerous work, and if Mary's story is true, she lost her first husband in a mine explosion just a couple of years later. That didn't push her back toward her father's house, though, because she was sick, and that full house wasn't one of care and nurture. Instead, she spent a long stay in an infirmary in the Welsh city of Cardiff, where her cousin lived, And that might have been a comfort to her, not least because the family there had a little money, or so Mary said. But when those stories were later repeated for the papers and the police, they said that it was through that moneyed cousin that Mary first came into a bad life. That's the way it was passed down, at least. We can't know for sure if Mary thought the life she found was bad, but we do know that it brought her to London. Her first stop was in the city's west side, a gay house there, she said, a West End bordello run by a French woman near Knightsbridge, possibly a social connection of her wealthy Cardiff family. It may even be that they struck up a friendship. Mary would later recount the times that the two of them had ridden through London on a carriage together, and even traveled to Paris. One woman would later tell the star that Mary had a reputation for being a cultured young woman, an excellent scholar and artist, she said. 
One friend said that she spoke fluent Welsh, and she may have spoken French as well. And the contacts and connections she made eventually brought her back to life in France. If that sounds charming, it could have been anything but. It may have been that the French brothel owners lured her there with false promises of a life that they never intended to give her. Whatever the case, Mary was able to escape their grasp and find her way back to London. But this time it wasn't to the wealthy, gay houses of the West Side. It was toward the East End. And things in Mary's life had taken a turn for the worse. She once went back to her former West End home, hoping to reclaim a box full of the valuable dresses she had owned when she lived there. But she didn't go alone. She asked one of her new East End connections to come along with her. It was clear that something about the life she left behind wasn't quite right. In the East End, too, she moved around. She had a couple different landlords and a couple different partners. She was a young woman in her early 20s trying to find a place for herself in a growing and tumultuous city. 1886 found her living in a lodging house in Thrall Street in Spitalfields, and that's where she met Joseph Barnett, a market porter who sold fruit and bought drinks for pretty women like Mary. Soon the two were living together. Joseph even remembered a time when Mary's father came to London to look for her. She asked Joseph to help her hide from him, not from the others in her family, though. One of her brothers, a soldier in the Scots Guard, had visited them once. They were carving out a sort of life for themselves in the East End, and in the fall of 1887, they even had enough pulled together to make their way to a little apartment off of Dorset Street. That might not mean much to us today, but when Mary Kelly and Joseph Barnett took their room there, it was a street with a reputation. Here's Paul Begg to tell us more. Dorset Street was a fairly narrow street. It had a pub one end and a bigger pub the other end and a small pub in the middle. And it was otherwise pretty much lined with what were called common lodging houses or DOS houses. There was a little shop there run by a man called John McCarthy, which was basically um, an all-night grocer's shop. And really nothing about it to be alarmed about. It had started out its life being known as Datchet Street. That became Dorset Street. And the locals used to call it Dosset Street because of the number of DOS houses that it contained. And it was the DOS houses which had a really bad reputation for being places of immorality, because not too many questions were asked if a man and a woman turned up wanting a bed together. And they were thought to be hotbeds of crime and thievery. And so they weren't really looked upon very kindly. But in fact, they were fairly horrible places, but especially by today's standards. But they really were the poor man's hotel. They were where you went, you could buy a bed for the night. And it's popularly argued that sometimes some just strung a rope from one side of the room to the other. And uh, for a penny, you could lean on the rope and go to sleep there. There are photographs of, of this sort of thing happening, but uh, I think that was a fairly uncommon practice but uh, so that yeah the, the dos houses were thought to be fairly dangerous and and to some extent they were and the uh, that gave dorset street a really bad name which grew worse over the years as more murders were committed there so that was mary's new neighborhood but it wasn't her situation though no mary still had enough to her name that she and joseph were able to rent a small room in a nook off of dorset street called miller's court 
Maybe Joseph was making enough from his work in Spitalfield's market that they could afford the four shillings that the landlord charged each week. Over the course of 1888, though, things started to slip. We don't know whether it was because Joseph's work as a porter dried up or if events in the East End made their lives too dangerous. In the later records, Joseph insisted he wasn't out of work, but by the end of October, the couple were seven weeks behind in their rent, and Mary was drinking. Of course, there was a shadow looming over both of them. Joseph said that Mary closely followed the news of the Whitechapel murders. He would buy papers, and Mary would have him read her everything they said. It must have cast a chill in their room. On October 30th, Joseph stormed out. It wasn't because of the drinking, though. It was because Mary took in a woman who Joseph said was a prostitute. To him, that was an offense, and one he couldn't bear. But we can imagine why Mary might want to offer shelter to a friend. In fact, Joseph would tell one newspaper that she was welcoming a number of sex workers into that narrow room. She was good-hearted, Joseph said, and did not like to refuse them shelter on cold, bitter nights. We can imagine the solidarity that Mary felt for the sex workers of Whitechapel and the women who were being murdered in their neighborhood. Women who couldn't pay the fees for Whitechapel lodging houses were being killed on the streets and in dark corners. In fact, there was a lodging house with rooms for 300 sleepers just across Dorset Street, but Mary had a private room, a roof over her own head. She wanted to offer what she had. For some reason, this put Joseph in a fury. Was he perhaps in denial about Mary's own past? We can't be sure. But we do know the fight between them was so bitter it even broke a window of their room. But it didn't change Mary's mind. So Joseph left and made his way to a lodging house in Bishop's Gate. With him gone, Mary was free to open the doors of her room in Miller's Court and provide refuge to other women. Clearly, Mary felt just how dangerous life was for poor women in the East End. She felt it so deeply she was willing to trade her lover and her partner to offer what shelter she had to her sisters in need. It was a ministry of compassion and mercy that we can only look back on with admiration. Of course, her door opened to other things too, and to other people. Those who came with intentions that were much more sinister and far more evil. There was no way he could have known. But when Joseph stopped in to talk with Mary on a Thursday evening, it was only hours before she would be murdered. It was around 7.30 at night, and Mary had just come back from the Ten Bells pub. At some point, Mary and Joseph had lost the key to their little room, so to open the door, Mary had to reach in through the broken window and trip the spring lock from the inside. Her friend, Lizzie Albrook, was with her, and when Joseph joined them, the three struck up a conversation. He didn't stay long, maybe 15 minutes. Despite the fight that had separated them, he said their talk was friendly. Of course, not much about Mary's situation had changed. She was regularly welcoming her friends in, and even held on to some of their belongings and clothing. Her Miller's courtroom was a haven in Whitechapel, it seems. Joseph would have known this. To one journalist, he said he would stop in at Miller's court to talk with Mary almost every day. If he had money, he said he would give her some. But on that evening, he told her he hadn't gotten any work, and he apologized for coming with empty pockets. She would have to go on earning her own keep for now. Lizzie left the pair together, and as she was going, Mary called out to her, Whatever you do, don't you do wrong and turn out as I have. When Lizzie talked to the press later on, she said Mary would often give her these warnings. 
Life in the East End was hard, and with her partner out of work and anger pushing them apart, Mary wished there was a way for her to go back to Ireland, where her people lived. But the money wasn't there to pave the way toward a new life somewhere else. And those dreams would be cut short in the coming hours. One of her neighbors in Miller's Court was headed home about 15 minutes before midnight. As she turned onto Dorset Street, she claimed she saw a couple walking in front of her and recognized Mary, wearing a warm, practical frock under her red shawl. Headed for the same place, they ambled into the passage together. The neighbor woman said Mary and her escort stepped into the little room. She called goodnight to Mary, who answered back, I am going to have a song, she said, but the words were slurred. The neighbor realized that Mary was drunk, but the man slammed the door shut behind them. She caught a look at him, though. She guessed he was about 36 years old. He was stout, she said, with a blotchy face under his black felt hat and a thick, carroty mustache. His long, dark overcoat was shabby, and he had a quart can of beer clutched in his hand. From her own room, the neighbor heard the sound of a song floating out of Miller's court, and she recognized the song, too, a popular tune from the music halls. It was a song of sorrow and nostalgia for a lost time. A violet plucked from mother's grave, it was called. Something small and beautiful, held onto in the midst of grief. A nearby flower seller also remembered hearing the song that night, as it passed from Thursday into Friday. It was a half hour after midnight, and she said that if her husband hadn't stopped her, she would have banged on Mary's door and complained. It was late for drunken ballads. But it wasn't too late for Mary Kelly. In fact, she was seen again that night, out on the street. An unemployed laborer from the area named George Hutchinson recognized her standing on a corner. In fact, the two knew each other, and as George went by, Mary asked him to lend her a sixpence. George had spent all of his money, though. He didn't have anything to lend her or anything to pay for her services. Mary was disappointed, but there was another man on the street, a man George had walked by earlier who was wearing a felt hat pulled down over his eyes. So far, George hadn't paid any attention to the man. He was just someone standing in the street. Now, though, George watched Mary walk toward him. The two exchanged a few words before they threw back their heads in quiet laughter. Then George saw the man put his arm around Mary's shoulders and set off with her toward the room at Miller's Court. They had to pass George, though. As they went by, something made him lean down and try to get a look at the man's face. The look that George got back was a stern glare, so stern that George felt compelled to follow the pair from a distance, and he took note of the man's appearance. He had a dark mustache that curled up at the ends, button boots and a black necktie, and a heavy gold chain that dangled from his waistcoat. In his right hand, he was carrying a pair of brown kid gloves, even as he draped it over Mary's shoulder. Under his arm, he had a small parcel. It was about eight inches long, George guessed, covered in what he called a dark American cloth, bundled together with a strap. George followed until the pair disappeared into Miller's court. He decided to wait until they came out again. So wait he did. In fact, he waited until the clock of the Whitechapel church struck three, but no one reappeared. Tired of waiting and watching, George moved on. And then it started to rain. In the dark hours that followed, a single cry went up in Miller's court. Two of the neighbors remembered hearing the single word split the dark, followed by silence. They assumed it was some fearful passerby, a drunk shout to be ignored, but they were wrong. It seems it was Mary's last testimony of her life. 
With her very last breath, she cried out a single word. Murder. The room that Mary had rented with Joseph was small, about 12 feet square. The furniture came with the place and belonged to the landlord. A bed and washstand that stood in as a bedside table. A small table and a single chair. We already know what it cost. Four shillings a week. When he walked into Miller's Court on Friday morning, Thomas Boyer knew how many times that four shillings had failed to appear. He was there on behalf of the landlord to collect. Mary Kelly owed 29 shillings, and it wasn't like she was knocking on the landlord's door to hand it over. So he sent Thomas to do the knocking. He pounded his fist on the door and got no answer. It was around 10.30 in the morning, so he decided to step inside and see what he could see. When he tried the latch, though, he found the door was locked. So he knocked again, then leaned over and put his eye to the keyhole. But it didn't give him a good view of the room. When he stepped back, Thomas Bowyer realized the window was broken. He could just reach inside. So he stepped forward and pulled back the old coat that was hanging in the window frame as a curtain to block the draft. And that's when he saw two pieces of flesh that were resting on Mary's bedside table. Then he looked to Mary's bed and found blood pooling around it on the floor. And he saw what the killer had done to Mary. Thomas rushed back to the landlord. He would later tell the coroner that he went as quietly as he could. The man who owned the property ran a small grocery out of the front of the building, and Thomas found him in the shop and told him what he had seen. Together they set out for the police station, and we can be sure that with every step they felt the growing weight of history. One of the officers who was at the station when the men arrived said Thomas's eyes were bulging out of his head, and he was so terrified that he could hardly speak. Two inspectors went together and followed Thomas's example. First, they tried the locked door, then one of them pushed the old coat aside. When he looked in, he saw what sent him reeling. For God's sake, don't look, he choked out. But the second officer ignored him and stepped forward to glance inside. When he later wrote his memoirs, the inspector said that what he saw was unprintable. The body on the bed was cut to pieces. Mary's face and the front of her body had all been carved away, except for her eyes. The inspector said that they were the sight that remained with him most vividly. When Joseph Barnett would later identify the body, he said it was only by the eyes and ears that he recognized Mary. The rest of her body had been monstrously mutilated beyond recognition. The inspectors telegraphed Scotland Yard and sent constables running with messages, and one of them remembered the plans that Charles Warren had put into place. He sent for the bloodhounds. Soon enough, both ends of Dorset Street were blocked. The entrance to Miller's Court was put under guard. The call went out for the surgeons to come view the body, and they did come. Dr. Phillips was the first to get the message, and he was just a few minutes away. He arrived at 11.15 that morning. The door was still locked. He made a simple assessment of Mary's mutilated body through the window and then waited with the other officers. Inspector Aberline arrived a few minutes later. Inspectors and constables all milled in the open space. They were waiting for the dogs and keeping the scene in the room undisturbed until their manhunters could come and catch the scent. So they waited and waited. Two hours passed before another police inspector arrived on the scene. He informed Aberline and the others that the order to send bloodhounds to the site had been overturned. They had waited for nothing, and time was passing. 
By then, the group was so impatient that they demanded the landlord open the door immediately. Of course, the key was gone. He fetched a pickaxe and levered it against the jam until, under the strain, the door leapt open, smashing into the bedside table as it opened onto the brutal scene. Dr. Phillips was followed by Dr. Brown, the surgeon from the London City Police who had examined Catherine Eddowes' body, and suggested that perhaps a butcher would have carried out the mutilations. And then Dr. Thomas Bond arrived too, at around 2 p.m., just after the head of Scotland Yard. The men took down in medical detail a horrifying catalog of violence to Mary's body. Her face gashed in all directions, every cut to the bone, every organ that had been slashed out and placed around her in the bed. And when a photographer arrived, he took the photograph that would survive down through the years in the police files, offering a glimpse of the stomach-turning horror to later investigators. The first to examine Mary's body found that she was very cold. The doctors estimated that she had been dead for hours. The horse cart to move the body arrived just before four in the afternoon. Crowds of people who had caught wind of the news rushed the police cordons at the ends of Dorset Street. The writer for the time said that they were of the humblest caste, but as they came near the cart and its cargo, men pulled off their ragged caps. The women of the neighborhood pushed closer, and the reporter noticed that even as the cloth was draped over the rough wooden coffin that held Mary's remains and it rolled out of Miller's court, deep feelings moved through them. Another of their own had died, and the women of Dorset Street wept. It was Aberline who did the questioning. George Hutchinson came forward himself to the Commercial Street Police Station. Under Aberline's eye, he described his observations of the night Mary Kelly died. George told the inspector that he was surprised to see such a well-dressed man in Mary's company. His testimony about the man with the dark mustache struck Aberline as important. And what's more, he wrote in his report that he believed the statement was true. In fact, Aberline found Hutchinson so convincing that he sent two officers to patrol Whitechapel with Hutchinson that night to see if they could find the curled mustache again. It was back to the same old techniques, pounding the pavement, looking for a needle in a haystack. Of course, questions persisted. Aberline wanted to pursue Hutchinson's lead. What about the man that the other neighbor had seen, the one with the blotchy face and the carroty mustache? The police and the press took her seriously, too, and she gave her testimony at Mary Kelly's inquest. And there were arrests made, too. Aberline said several people were detained. Hutchinson and Barnett were both carefully questioned. But, he wrote, everyone had been able to account for their movements that night. And when the questions ran out and no answers came, they were released. Any plans that had been laid came to nothing. The dogs that had been kenneled in Whitechapel were never used. The detectives had neither solved nor prevented one of the most monstrous crimes in British history. It was felt as far away as Scotland, where Queen Victoria was holding court at Balmoral. News of Mary's death reached her the day after the killing, and it must have been described in some detail. She sent a telegraph to the Prime Minister, and it buzzed with her displeasure. This new, most ghastly murder, she wrote, shows the absolute necessity for some very decided action. All these courts must be lit and our detectives improved. If that wasn't clear enough, the Queen doubled down on the detectives and wrote, they are not what they should be. A displeased monarch and a displeased people. The detectives at Scotland Yard were in over their heads. 
But with Charles Warren leaving his post, there was now a chance to make another change to London's police. The Home Secretary put forward his man once again, and James Monroe grabbed the reins. That didn't leave everyone convinced, though. For journalists unfamiliar with Warren's fight against the Home Secretary, his resignation on the day of Mary Kelly's murder seemed like a clear admission that the police were incapable of the task. And this was the time that journalists also began to make note of just how many officers had vacated their posts for summer holiday when the murders began. On November 12th, one man who had been a member of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee wrote to the Evening News to suggest that no matter who took over at Scotland Yard, the police could no longer be trusted with the investigation of the crimes. He looked to the other armies in Whitechapel, the Salvation Army, and those like them. And he wanted to start something like a recruiting drive. Surely a body of matrons from the West End of London, he wrote, of all classes, the higher the better, might meet a body of matrons from the East End and take common counsel for the relief of their erring sisters. There was, as we might expect, a pinch of Charles Warren's victim-blaming in his note. To his eyes, the trouble was the women that the murderer was targeting, and the solution was better, more respectable women to step in and shape them up. The police were failing. The man's vigilance committee had failed. Maybe there was something that respectable women could do. He was even less ambitious than activist Frances Power Cobb. She had already suggested that a fleet of women detectives would actually be able to solve the case and catch the killer where Scotland Yard had come up short. After all, as the feminists of the day knew well, women were more willing to talk with each other than to answer the probing questions of Scotland Yard's baton-wielding sergeants. And the police were already casting around for better answers. A keen-eyed woman might do as well, she wrote, as those keen-nosed bloodhounds. And in many ways, she was right. Women in the East End were already hard at work doing for themselves what no one else would do. Of course, as we've seen over and over so far, it wasn't the respectable women who were making life more secure in Whitechapel. But Whitechapel women were making history. They had already identified their true foes, and they were doing battle with them in a way no one had expected. After all, white phosphorus had killed more women than the murderer's knife ever could, and when Fossy Jaw wasn't taking their health and their lives, the factory bosses were squeezing their paychecks. Yes, a killer was cutting East End women apart, following the most vile impulses of his imagination. But East End women were pulling together in ways they never had before. Here's Dr. Louise Raw to tell us more. And the union was so busy because, you see, they didn't rest on their laurels. They kept unionizing. They kept taking the message to other groups of workers. So the girls that worked in nearby confectionery factories, the sweetie girls who worked in jam factories, the wives of East End dockers, they were constantly having meetings and trying to unionize them as well. And there's a really amusing account from one of the leagues of middle-class women, philanthropic women who were trying to organize working-class women, but in a bit of a middle-class top-down way, which didn't always go down very well with the women themselves. But they recorded at the time that they were absolutely worn out with these match women because they kept coming to them and saying, all right, um, we want you to help us because we want to have another union meeting, please, um, with the Jam Factory girls. And we'd like you to help us find a venue, please. And then we would like tea and cakes. And we would like some Irish music. 
and they were like, oh my God, you know, we've got to try and find an Irish musician now at short notice. But I love this idea of a union meeting that involves tea and cake and Irish dancing. How fantastic. But even as the press and the police leaned into the darkness, even as they focused on the murderer and made the most vicious Londoner the loudest story in the empire, other things were afoot. And the match factory women weren't content to wallow in the same fear that paralyzed their wealthy neighbors. Neglected by the nation's storytellers, the match women nevertheless set about building something much more powerful than the story of Jack the Ripper. And it was a case that the women of the East End had already cracked wide open. The surgeons all agreed. Dr. Thomas Bond would be the one to write their report. He was joined in the Shoreditch mortuary by all of the doctors who had come to Miller's court. And they even added the police surgeon for the Whitechapel Division, Dr. Dukes. Together, this small parliament of surgeons conducted the autopsy of Mary Kelly on Saturday afternoon, the day after her murder. And it brought together every medical mind that had considered the case. The work took them two and a half hours. Once they had discussed the job, they divided the duties up. Dr. Phillips prepared to present their findings at the coroner's inquest. Dr. Bond, who had already been commissioned to assess the Whitechapel murders as a whole with a report to the police, agreed to write a specific report on the details of Mary Kelly's death. What he wrote took into account the work of his fellow surgeons. There was Dr. Phillips' first guess, that the killer brought some sort of medical background to his crimes. And there was Dr. Brown's suggestion that perhaps the vicious hacking at Catherine Edo's body betrayed the work of a butcher or slaughterman. But taken together with the deaths of Liz Stride and Polly Nichols, Dr. Bond came to a different conclusion. Here's Adam Wood to tell us more. In his report dated the 10th of November, Bond concluded that all five had been killed by the same hand, with the throat cut from left to right being the first attack while the women were lying down. The mutilations were carried out after death, and he believed a murderer did not have anatomical knowledge, not even to the degree of a butcher. He said the knife was that uh, carried out the mutilations was at least six inches long, with a sharp point such as a butcher's or surgeon's knife. And he went on from there, too. The last two sections of Dr. Bond's report collected the thoughts and speculations of the other examiners and coroners who had endeavored to come up with a criminal profile. Reflecting these ideas through his own perspective, Dr. Bond offered the Metropolitan Police his own perspective on the killer's character. Bond said that he worked alone. He was likely to be ordinary-looking. Probably middle-aged and neatly dressed, Bond wrote. He must be in the habit of wearing a cloak or overcoat, and he could hardly have escaped notice in the streets if the blood on his clothes or hands were visible. And he would be and I quote, solitary and eccentric in his habits, and likely without regular occupation. And finally, Bond guessed that the murderer might even live among respectable persons who have some knowledge of his character and habits, and who may have grounds for suspicion that he is not quite right in his mind at times. In signing off, Dr. Bond made the suggestion that the prospects of a reward might overcome the trouble or notoriety that could be keeping back informants from turning in their man. It was a measured sketch of the killer, and while it took pains to overturn the earlier stabs at identification from the other doctors, it did little to narrow the search. It was nearly a declaration that unless there was someone who could be moved to turn in the murderer, the man would never be caught. But would London turn on one of their own, 
just as the killer had turned on London? It was a question that would have been on many minds a week later, when Mary Kelly's body was carried to the churchyard of St. Leonard's in Shoreditch. The parish clerk was also keeper of the Shoreditch mortuary, and he had prepared to lay Mary to rest to the best of his ability. No wealthy relatives appeared from Cardiff to pay for Mary's burial, but the mortuary keeper decided not to let her slip into a pauper's grave. In death, Mary received what life never gave her. A polished elm and oak coffin gleamed on its metal mounts under ornaments of artificial flowers. Two horses drew the open carriage through the enormous crowd that assembled in the thoroughfare. As it rolled by, the cart was covered with cards as the church bell rang out the noon hour. Four pallbearers lifted the casket and carried it into the cemetery. Hands reached out from every side to touch the polished box as it went by, and again the sound of weeping swept through the crowd. Joseph followed, and despite all the questions that remained unanswered, he did the least that he could do. He joined the men and women of the East End to lay Mary to rest with dignity. That's it for this week's episode of Unobscured. Stick around after this short sponsor break for a preview of what's in store for next week. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The arguments swirled back and forth through the causes and consequences of the murders. What could the Home Office do about the East End's lodging houses, with their cramped conditions housing crowds of unknown persons? What could the Home Office do to stop the police from publishing the names of suspects who turned out to have no connection to the murders, but were stained with a connection to Jack the Ripper? When all the questions were asked, though, Parliament would be left unsatisfied. 
They could demand the capture of the killer, sure. They could demand a change. But even after Charles Warren stepped away from his post and James Monroe stepped out from his shadowy corner of the Home Office to take command, Home Secretary Matthews had nothing more to give them. Like the police of the world's largest city, the government of the world's most commanding empire was at a loss. Because the answers to their questions just weren't there. Unobscured was created by me, Aaron Mankey, and produced by Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Josh Thane in partnership with iHeartRadio. Research and writing for this season is all the work of my right-hand man, Carl Nellis, and the brilliant Chad Lawson composed the brand new soundtrack. Learn more about our contributing historians, source material, and links to our other shows over at historyunobscured.com. And until next time, thanks for listening. Unobscured is a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.